Part Two, Chapter Seven of Life and Lillian Gish. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. Life and Lillian Gish by Albert Bigelow Payne. Part Two, Chapter Seven The Birth of a Nation. David Wark Griffith was the son of a soldier and had been brought up on war tales he believed the time had come when the talk that had been so vivid to his childhood should be given form and motion that the bitter struggle of four years with its rankling sequences should be presented on the screen from thomas dixon's the leopard spots and the clansman he outlined his scenario and began work the latter title was to be the name of the picture the new and far greater title the birth of a nation was not used until the film had been actually finished and shown the story of this achievement the first and still in many respects the greatest of war pictures has many times been told one or two paragraphs however from robert edgar long's biography of griffith may not be out of place Six weeks of constant rehearsals preceded the taking of the first scene, and throughout the next six months required to complete the spectacle. So many things happened it would require an entire volume to enumerate them. Among the most notable scenes in this finished production were the Battle of Petersburg, fought by 18,000 men on a field five miles across, the march of Sherman to the sea culminating in the burning of Atlanta, the assassination of President Lincoln in the crowded Ford's Theater in Washington, the wild rides of the Ku Klux Klan, and the session of the South Carolina legislature under the Negro carpetbagger regime. Had Griffith guessed that the World War was coming, he would hardly have had the courage to begin he had to assemble a vast horde of extras horses thousands of uniforms and ku klux gowns arms he had to construct breastworks trenches all the front of war he had to do all this when a real war was sweeping europe and all prices especially of the things he needed soaring to the sky horses were the hardest i do not yet see where he got them when european agents were everywhere in search of just the horses he wanted and then the money the treasurer of the reliance majestic company must have believed that griffith thought him the treasurer of the united states the way he drew on him of course there was an end to that griffith had to go outside for money and credit one may imagine him buying all the white cotton in los angeles to make those ku klux gowns most of it on credit long says it became a battle for dollars and it is told that the determined griffith himself actually went begging among the merchants of los angeles to get the final one thousand dollars with which to complete his work most of griffith's players went into the cast as the role seemed to fit them of the female parts may marsh was supposed to have the best 
Blanche Sweet was still held to be Griffith's chief star, and as the part of Elsie Stoneman, the northern girl who becomes the sweetheart of the southern colonel, Walthall, did not seem quite big enough for her. Griffith gave it to Lillian. At least that is the way it is remembered now. I think there were other reasons. In the first place, Walthall was of small stature, which accounts for his being dubbed the little colonel in the play. Blanche was of ample proportions. The two were not a good match. For another thing, Griffith knew that Lillian's frail loveliness set against the big mulatto features of the villain of the piece, the man bound to possess her, would move the audience as would the face of no other member of his company. It is also just possible that Griffith in the beginning did not realize how big the part of Elsie Stoneman was to be. He had a fashion of making his play as he went along. Fifteen years later, he only said, When I gave Lillian the part in The Birth of a Nation, I merely thought she could play it without considering how well, or at least without thinking she would make anything out of it, though, of course, by that time, I knew she would do it in her own way. The field work of the birth was done at the Universal Ranch, the place of diversified scenery outside Los Angeles. The play itself was made at the Fine Arts Studio, which consisted of an exterior stage like that on Pico Street, only instead of a large building, a lot of little shacks served as temporary, very temporary dressing rooms. Any player so inclined could build one for his or her own use and trim it and decorate it according to fancy. The roof was merely a piece of canvas held in place, also according to fancy. It rarely rained. At one side of the lot was constructed the street on which fronted the Cameron Southern home, about which most of the play is centered. There was not much in the way of scenic designing. A stage carpenter, Huck Wortman, one of the old-fashioned kind, who chewed tobacco and cocked up his eye, was equal to most things. If Griffith wanted a village street with a vine-covered cottage, or a southern mansion, or a hospital, Huck cocked an eye shifted his quid, and said, All right, and it was so. As a Civil War spectacle, the birth of a nation will probably never be outdone. The battlefield with its miles of hand-to-hand -hand fighting, the assembling of the Klan, hundreds of them in white robes mounted, Lincoln's assassination, these things were more impressive than ever the reality could have been for no one of them was ever viewed in its entirety or with deliberation and it seems impossible that they should ever have been more real stirring appropriate music fitted by griffith to the scenes added a final thrill the negro aspects of the picture were not entirely fortunate within the facts but hardly within the proprieties it attached no blame to the negro for the abuses of reconstruction but presented him in an unfavorable light negro political domination in the south was an evil growing out of the war a war and an evil 
for which the negro was the last person to be held responsible the last person to be reminded of them the clansmen as if was first called were shown publicly at clune's auditorium los angeles on the evening of february eighth nineteen fifteen all the film colony of los angeles being present reports had been spread that there would be negro rioting and the police were out in force there was no trouble the theater was jammed here and there in the audience were negroes following this presentation a print of the picture was hurried to washington and shown to president wilson members of the cabinet and their families a few days later february twentieth this print was run in new york for the censors and others concerned thomas dixon author of the story was present and declared excitedly to griffith the clansman is too tame a title for what you have done let's call it the birth of a nation which became its title then and there on march third the picture was shown at the liberty theatre new york city at two dollars a seat the first time a motion picture ever became a full-sized theatre attraction even so it was in for a record run lillian's success as elsie stoneman was a complete surprise to her for she had not liked the part and then it had dragged on for so long but when the notices poured in she must have begun to wonder if anybody but herself and walthall were in the picture their faces together and hers alone looked out from every page from new york thomas dixon wrote my dear miss gish i don't care to tell you all the beautiful things i'd like to say about you and your exquisite work in our picture between the acts last week a distinguished young man of letters editor of a great magazine found me in the lobby dragged me one side and whispered for god's sake tell me quick who is the glorious little girl playing elsie i answered miss lillian gish i want to meet her right away where is she he gasped he's only one of many hundreds how can i ever thank you for such work believe me it belongs to the big things in life for which money never pays i am your debtor for services for which i not only could never pay but don't know how to thank you sincerely thomas dixon dorothy fortunately had no part in the birth of a nation fortunately because she was overtaken by an accident when the picture was well under way of course it was just a coincidence that a fortune-teller only a little while before had warned her against an automobile accident anybody could do that nevertheless he had warned her and she would walk across the street where automobiles were passing on that particular day it was thanksgiving she had been lunching with griffith and may marsh and miriam cooper and coming out of the restaurant held to griffith's coat demanding that he buy her something oh mr griffith please buy me some candy mr griffith please buy me some chewing gum oh mr griffith please they were crossing a street just then the boulevard crowded with cars 
the others a little way in advance of dorothy she never knew quite what happened but in the wink of an eye she was down on the ground on her face a car that had struck her in a variety of places was standing with its front wheel between her feet one of which it had crushed dorothy's disaster was not all sorrow lillian was with her most of the time friends were willing to entertain her steadily griffith had a miniature screen installed with a projection machine and gave her a private view of so much of the birth of a nation as was then complete no damaged young queen had ever been so royally entertained in a reasonably brief space she was on her feet limping for a time but otherwise as well as ever end of part two chapter seven recording by john brandon